in this subject for several more weeks. Scriptures? Revelation 12, verse 11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Galatians 6.14 But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but, un but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. Father, we, uh, I just come before you this morning and I ask, Lord, that you would uh, be with me, Lord, as I preach unto your people, Lord, the message of the cross and its importance. And Lord, as we begin this new series, Lord, I pray that it would just be a life-changing series for all of us, Lord, from the preacher on down. Because, Lord, we need to be aware of the uh, cross of Jesus Christ and what it means, not only for our salvation, but also our sanctification. And it enables us to lead a holy life as we reckon our old man to be crucified with you there on the cross. So, Lord, I pray that this would be life-changing for all of us. And I pray that you just anoint these lips of clay. Help me to speak your word in uh, plainness of speech and uh, uh, in clarity of thought. Thank you for being with me now as I preach the word and anoint our ears so that we would uh, listen and, uh, uh, Lord, uh, hear what the Spirit is saying to this church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I've felt led to begin a new series today entitled The Calvary Road and it's based upon a work that was written by Roy Hessian uh, about the middle of last century and uh, the theme verse of this uh, series is Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 which tells us and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Revelation 12, 11. Now, if you remember, I've been talking about spiritual warfare. And for about two years now, I've been talking about the weapons of God. And we've gone through such things as the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, praying in the spirit. Uh, we were spent a number of Sundays on the name of Jesus. And if you remember, the last in the, those weapons that I talked about uh, was the blood of the Lamb. 
And uh, there's still one other that I haven't covered, and that's uh, uh, the high praises of God. But I just felt led to skip that one for right now and talk about the blood of the Lamb. Another thing that uh, I uh, remember from a few weeks ago that I shared with you about how uh, a man by the name of Greg Laurie, who is one of the truly great pastors and evangelists of our time, and when he was still young, he sat down to lunch with uh, Billy Graham one time. And he asked uh, uh, Billy Graham, kind of rather pointedly, he said, uh, what would an older Billy Graham say to a younger Billy Graham about what he should be preaching? And he asked that question because he wanted to tailor his sermons more to be in line with what uh, uh, this older uh, Billy Graham, who looked back on his ministry, what he, how he would change things. And the Billy Graham told him without hesitation, he said, I would preach more on the cross because that's where the power is. Also, I want to emphasize the message that the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient for our justification as we appropriate the righteousness of Jesus Christ for our own and also our sanctification. Sanctification is the process of us becoming more and more holy. Remember I've talked to you about sanctification before. Sanctification is both a past action. We were sanctified when we were born again. We were set apart from the world. But it's also a process because we don't just instantly become holy automatically, right? It's a process, and we learn to walk more and more in holy ways as we get older. Hopefully we're doing it, and hopefully we're praying for uh, a more holy walk as we go through life. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk to you just uh, for a few minutes about th this scripture, Revelation 12, verse 11. And, uh, you know, I... I used to only, I always think that uh, what it's talking about, where it says that they overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, <clears throat> and they loved not their lives to death. I always thought that that's talking about the uh, saints that were martyred during the time of the Great Tribulation. And I thought this way because there's similarities with it in uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, When he, that is one of the angels, opened up the uh, seventh seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony that, which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So this particular scripture, which is uh, taking place in heaven, 
Uh, John sees these saints that were martyred. Specifically, they were martyred during the Great Tribulation. So, I always thought that uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, was also dealing with that. But if you notice the context of Revelation 12, 11, you go back to verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and king the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Come, for the accuser of our brethren. Who's the accuser of our brethren? Who is the accuser in the Bible? Satan. It's Satan, isn't it? Okay, until the accuser of our brethren, who accused them, that is these saints, <clears throat> before our God day and night has been cast down. And then they... So this is not referring to just the ones that have been martyred during the Great Tribulation. It's referring to all saints. Because Satan is alive and well and he's accusing us before the throne room of God even at this very moment. He is the accuser. Okay? They overcame him, all saints overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Okay, now as I, my point here is that it's not referring just to the saints killed during the Great Tribulation, but it's a much wider scope including all of the saints throughout all the ages. Because Satan has been accusing the saints before the throne room of God since the beginning of time. We know this. You remember the story of Job? How did Job's suffering come about? Satan appeared before God in heaven. And God says, have you ever seen a more upright man than my servant Job? And uh, uh, Satan accuses Job. He says, he's only serving you because you blessed him so much. But if you take all of those blessings away from him, then he'll curse you to uh, your face. And now what he did? So he was there in the throne room of God doing what? Accusing Job. Job probably lived at the time of Abraham or maybe even before. And if he was accusing Job before the throne room, God believe me, he's been accusing every one of us. And like I said, all the saints throughout all the ages. Because that's his nature. He is the accuser. He is the slanderer. Okay, so how do we overcome him? Well, according to Revelation 12, 11, we overcome him by, first of all, the blood of the Lamb. And this is talking about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. It is sufficient to wipe away all of your uh, sin in your life, past, present, and future. You say, God, you mean he, he paid for my sins, even the future ones? Well, think of it this way. When did Jesus die? About roughly 2,000 years ago, right? 
How many of your sins were future when he hung there on the cross? Every single one of them, right? He paid for all of your sins. And it's, it's not just uh, the sins, your sins, although you need to uh, appropriate them personally. You need to take what he did on the cross for you in a personal way. He died for you personally. It's been well said that even if you were the only one that was sin, uh, that had sinned in the whole world, Jesus would still have died for you. But he died not only for your sins and my sin, he died for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter uh, 2 uh, verse 2 says that he is the propitiation, that is the satisfactory atonement, satisfactory payment for our sins, and not only for our sins alone, but for the sins of the entire world. So, he died for your sins, and it only includes the freedom from the penalty of sin, which is justification, but also from the power of sin. That's our sanctification as well as eventually the very present uh, presence of sin. And that's called glorification. That will only come on the day of resurrection. And for this reason, Satan hates this subject of the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, I think I've gotten attacked almost more than ever before in my life just in the last few weeks because the devil knew that I was formulating these, this series of message and he wanted to sidetrack me any way he can. He hates this message of the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ because again, what did Billy Graham say? That's where the power is. You discover the message of the cross, brothers and sisters, you have discovered the source of your power in your Christian life. Another way that we overcome him, we overcome Satan, is we do it by the word of their testimony, the saints, the word of your testimony. This is talking about the public stand that all Christians, all believers must take for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just for those that are martyred for the cause of Christ because they refuse to deny him, but all saints need to make this public confession. And water baptism, brothers and sisters, is a perfect time to do that. And that's the reason why I write that into the uh, confession that I ask all baptismal uh, candidates to recite for me as I baptize them. I have them, I ask them, do you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and uh, Savior? That he perished on the cross for your sins. And not only for your sins, but the sins of the entire world. And the answer needs to be yes. That's when you make your public confession. And then I continue on. Do you agree to always walk with him in newness of life? 
forsaking all sin and striving to live a holy life as long as you shall live? And of course, the answer again needs to be yes. That's their public confession of how they have become a Christian now and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, He said, Whoever confesses me before men, him also I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Sorry, I'm going to slide behind here. Okay. Now how... Also do we overcome him? We overcome him by self-denial. The last uh, phrase there in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, is they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and number three, they did not love their lives unto the death. Again, it's not just talking about the martyrs, for Christ, who willingly gave up their lives rather than deny him uh, <clears throat> by those that demanded that they recant or be killed, as will, will happen during the tribulation. But you know what? That's happening right now. It's happening now in communist countries. It's happening now in Muslim lands. We've got it so good here, brothers and sisters. We're not being persecuted like the people have been in ages past. And they did that during the Roman Empire too, the days of the Roman Empire. It's referring to all of us because Jesus is calling all of us to practice self-denial. What's self-denial? Self-denial is renouncing one's self-will and choosing instead to follow his will. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 verse 23. And he said to them all. All of his disciples. If anyone desires to come after me. Let him deny himself. Pick up, take up his cross daily. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. How do you lose your life? You lose it by practicing self-denial. That is, you say, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to pick up my cross daily. What's that? Picking up the cross means living a life of deep surrender. You surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and His will for your life. You say, just like he did there in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. Thy will be done in my life. Now, Jesus wouldn't pick up the physical cross for maybe another 12 hours or so. But at that point in time, he was as good as lifting it up right away. Well. <laughs> okay, I hope that wasn't somebody's cross that they dropped there. 
Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about the blood of the Lamb because this is what this series is about. It's about the cross and it's about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This involves death to self-righteousness. Good example of this is the uh, parable that Jesus to uh, told in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And he spoke this parable, he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. These people that go around believing that they are righteous because of their works, they look down on those that don't believe as they are. You know, it's a natural outgrowth of uh, self-righteousness, stubborn pride. They despise others. You know, the people on the left, you know, the political spectrum, you know, they, they look at uh, those of us that are conservatives and they think we're evil because we don't believe that people are free to, should not be free to practice sin in their lives. And they despise us. We think they're wrong because we think they're not using our critical thinking. Think things through. But they despise us. And here's the parable here. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He knows he prayed to himself. He didn't pray to God. He prayed to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners. Unjust. Adulterers. Or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of every all that I possess. And what did the tax collector do? It says that he just stood afar off. And would not even raise his eyes up to heaven. But instead just beat on his breast. And said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now the mercy that the tax collector cried out for in the parable is based on this. It's based on the finished work. Everybody say finished work. It's finished. Jesus said it is finished. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. The tax collector recognized that only God could forgive him. Amen? 
Jesus told another parable back in Luke chapter 7, verses uh, 40 through uh, 50. The story of him going to eat at the home of a Pharisee. And while he's there, this woman came in and came up to Jesus, cried and wept. Her, his feet uh, uh, with her, her tears anointed them with uh, uh, ointment and the Pharisee just you know just like the Pharisee in the parable he thought the same thing now if this man this Jesus was a prophet he would know what kind of woman this is that she's a sinner and he wouldn't allow her to do that and so Jesus just calmly said you know, Simon, I believe the man's name was Simon. He said, Simon, I'm going to ask you a question. He said that there was a, uh, a man and he had two uh, people that owed him money. One of them owned, owed him 500 denarii and the other one owed only 50. And out of his mercy of his heart, he forgave both of them. He says, which one would love him more? And... Pharisee thought for a minute. He says, well, I suppose it would be the one that had owed him 500 denarii. And Jesus said, you've judged correctly. And then he drew the contrast. The one who owed him 500 denarii was the woman, the sinner. The one that only owed 50 was the Pharisee. And that's why the woman loved him more, because she had more. And that was true right here in that parable. That tax collector owed more than the, the Pharisee did. And that made him love God more. And he just recognized that he couldn't possibly be good enough for God to forgive him for his sin. It had to be God's mercy. There's a story of uh, uh, this woman I believe it was uh, Napoleon was riding his horse in his procession. This woman fell down right in front of his horse, so he pulled up. And she said, mercy, mercy, oh great Napoleon, I ask for mercy. And Napoleon says, mercy for what? He says, for my husband. He's sl uh, slated to be executed. What is his name? She told him, his face clouded and said, your husband is a traitor. He deserves to be killed. And the woman said, great Napoleon, I didn't ask for justice. I asked for mercy. And that's what we have to ask. You never want the God's justice on you. You want his mercy. Hallelujah. Now, Whereas there are no Pharisees, at least that we call them today, the attitude of the Pharisees is alive and well in today's world. And many people and many groups, even those that claim to be Christian, are Pharisees at heart. Now, I've uh, cited many times one group, and, and uh, uh, they call themselves the Church of Christ. Oh, if you don't belong to the Church of Christ, you're not saved. You don't belong to their in-group. 
And they trust in their membership in this church group. They trust in their baptism into that church group. They say you're not even saved unless you're baptized into their church. And they trust in their works. And they misuse James chapter 2 to get this. They say it's not just enough to do the good works that you should be doing if you are a Christian, but you have to trust in those good works. You have to believe in, you have to rely on these works. And James is merely saying when he talks about faith without works is dead, is merely saying that if you are truly born again, if you're a true Christian, you should produce the works. And they love to uh, cite James chapter 2. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'll just quote one verse. He's using uh, Abraham as an example. Of someone that had faith but pro and then produced the works when he uh, sacrificed or was about to sacrifice <clears throat> Isaac, his son. And he said, Do you not see how faith wrought with his works? And by works... Faith was made perfect. I've talked to you many times what, what perfect means. What does perfect mean? Who, who remembers that? Perfect means made complete. His faith was completed by the fact that he followed it through with his works. And the same thing, that's how your faith is made per complete too. Is you produce the good works. The good works include the fruit of the Spirit, which should be manifest to everyone. You should be becoming more holy every day. You should be seeing the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, patience. You should be displaying those more and more in your, uh, every day in your life. That's how you know that you, you're, you have faith. These people that go around saying, well, James says the faith without works is dead. They're saying really that with one sweep of the pen, James wipes out all the carefully crafted arguments about justification by faith that Paul wrote in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians. And that's not true. James is talking about practicalities. Perfect illustration. You know, we all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Okay? Paul lays down his doctrinal foundation in chapters 1 through 3. And then he gets into the practicalities. Since you've been justified by faith, this is what you we, you, your life should be. And chapters 4 through 6 all deal with that. And I don't have time to go through it, but you, you, you look at it. So James is, is not the same kind of book. James doesn't deal with doctrine in the front of his epistle like Paul did. 
He just goes right into the practicalities. And I've told you, you know, I've used this illustration. You know, suppose I walk on past this man's house and it's a freezing cold day outside and he beckons me and says, come on into my house here. You know, I see you're really cold. He says, I've got a nice warm roaring fire for you. And I look up to his chimney and I don't see any smoke. So you know what? I don't know if he's got that roaring fire or not. You see that? Paul says, I'm concerned about the fire of faith burning in your heart. James says, I want to see the smoke. Okay? The smoke, the works should follow you if you are truly a born-again Christian. Hallelujah. Okay, moving right along. One of those letters that I just cited is Galatians, the book of Galatians. The whole context of the book of Galatians, you know what he was dealing with? He was dealing with these very people. These uh, They were called Judaizers. And he'd spent his first missionary journey you know, preaching the gospel, telling them about this doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And then after he left, there were these Judaizers, the, these Jews that came in, and they said, okay, uh, you, in order to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. These are Gentile believers that weren't circumcised. He says, uh, you have to be circumcised and follow the book, uh, 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 the law of Moses. And Paul fought against that mentality and he devoted the entire book of Galatians to refute this notion. And then towards the end, in chapter 6, there's only six chapters, chapter 6, verse 14, he says, But God forbid that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boast. God forbid that I glory in anything else but the cross of Jesus Christ. Now this was not true of the Pharisee in that parable. The one there in Luke chapter 18 and also the one in previous chapters, Luke chapter 7. It's also not true of the modern day Pharisees. These modern-day Pharisees, they glory in their church. They glory in their baptism. They glory in their works. I glory in the cross of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for me there. Notice also Paul's statement on being crucified. I have been crucified. This is back in, uh, in, in chapter 2 of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I want to conclude this message with a story. And I've shared, I believe I've shared this story with you before, maybe once or twice before. 
but it's so pertinent to what I'm talking about here. It's about a man that this was related to me during my apologetics class, during my first year of Bible college by uh, my mentor, the man that I regard as my mentor, the late Dr. Walter R. Martin. And he related this story to us, uh, his class, about uh, a man, uh, he only names him as Dr. Titcomb. I don't know uh, anything more about Dr. Titcomb, but Dr. Titcomb, it seems when he was a young man, was a missionary to Africa. And he felt led of God to uh, preach the gospel to this tribe of cannibals in the interior. And he said that they walked along, you know, his guides and his porters walked along, and then they were just frozen, they were just petrified, because there perched on a pole was a grinning skull at them. And everybody abandoned him. But he said, I went on alone because I felt God wanted me to reach this tribe. About a half mile up the trail, he said he was suddenly surrounded by a host of black people. Their mouths parted in smiles and their teeth were filed to fine points. That's the way some of the tribes there in Africa did, is they'd take a file and they'd uh, uh, you know, file their uh, uh, teeth to fine points, make them look more fierce. And he was taken to the village there. And the chief of the village came out there and he recognized part of the dialect is what he had already learned. And the chief demanded to know who he was and why he dared enter his domain. And he said to him, Oh, great and mighty potentate, you know, I bring you a message from the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the creator of the earth, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. And the chief said, from him? You know, it's interesting. The great king, he knew that. He knew there was a great king. He knew that there was somebody greater than him. And he says, enter. And he was taken into this hut and they... Uh, uh, Served him a big meal. He said, uh, uh, don't ask me if I've ever eaten human flesh. I won't answer because I don't know. I merely ate what was set before me, asking no questions for conscience sake. The meal was finished. The wives and the concubines <clears throat> left. And he was there with the king and his most trusted warriors. And he said to Dr. Titcomb, what message has the great king for me? And Dr. Titcomb said, Your Majesty, there is a disease that is all over the earth. It causes men, the hearts of all men, it causes them to lie, to cheat, to steal, to kill. This disease has spread across the entire earth. And the king said, we have it here too. The king, great king has sent me to tell you he has a cure for this disease. The, the chief said, wonderful. 
What is this cure? And he opened up the scriptures and preached to him Jesus and the resurrection. The cross, the efficacy of the blood to cleanse the hearts of all mankind. Forgiveness. That night he slept beside a fire out in the open and he heard this rustling sound and he didn't know what it was. And then from around the fire came this uh, large black man with huge hands, came up to him and stared right into his face, filed teeth and all. And the men spoke to him and said, I have heard what you said about the great king. My heart is heavy within me. It is my task to sacrifice to the crocodile god girl babies every year. This is what I have done faithfully for many years. And he held his huge hands up there in the firelight and said, They are red with the blood of children. Can the son of the great king cleanse them? And that night... By the firelight, Dr. Kitcom led that man to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifty years later, he prepared to leave his beloved Africa for the final time. And they held a giant communion service in his honor. There, as far as the eye could see, there were black faces dressed in white linen cloths. Symbolizing Christian cleansing, purity. And as he reached out for the elements, this old man stooped over, passed him the elements, and he looked up at this gnarled old face. It was the same man that had approached him by the firelight. 50 years earlier. That's the power of the cross to remake a human being, no matter how black their heart is. It can change and transform. And if he could change a man like that, he can change any one of us. Amen? Amen. And that's what this whole series is about. The efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all sin. Hallelujah. We're going to get into the book, uh, The Calvary Road. It's first written and uh, published in 1950 by Roy Hessian. I was going to bring it to you, but I forgot to put it in my Bible to uh, show to you. Uh, Hessian was a British evangelist in the late 1940s who, who have heard of this great work that God was doing there in East Africa at this time. And at a, an evangelistic, uh, uh, he heard about re, uh, just not just a, a revival. So often we think of uh, revivals being like a flash in the pan, but this revival was continuing on and on and on, and he wanted to find out the secret of what was going on. So he invited some of the ministers to share about the revival, and this book, The Calvary Road, was the outgrowth of what they learned of it. Okay, so I purchased the book back in the 19, late 1970s. 
read it several times since, and I just felt led for me. Uh, God wanted me to get into that and share with you the gist of it. It's a short little book. It's only about uh, 70 written pages, but it's just packed full of so much stuff. And I'll be sharing that with you uh, as time goes by. Some of the topics it covers. talks about brokenness. Brokenness is what I was talking about with the uh, self-denial. That is, your own self-will needs to be broken so that you will follow God's will and say with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Cup running over talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the way of fellowship, or to have fellowship one with another as well as the Lord, highway of holiness, don't need to expound on that, the dove and the lamb, Who's the dove? In the scripture, who's the dove? The Holy Spirit, right? Who's the lamb? Jesus. It talks about their very nature. Revival in the home. How many of you have regular home Bible study with your children or together? You should be having them together. The moat and the beam. That's a play on the parable that Jesus talked about. And he says, uh, you know, too many people go and say, well, you've got a moat in your eye. You've got a speck in your eye. And, you, you know, at the same time, you've got a, what, a beam, you know, a board in your, your eye. He said, uh, you know, first get rid of the board in your own eye. Then you can see well enough to, you know, get the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, once again, don't be... Judge, uh, the judge of people. Don't be concerned with others' faults and ignore your own. Are you willing to be a servant? No explanation needed there too. The power of the blood of the Lamb, that's what we've been talking about. And finally, protesting our innocence. Well, that's not me. You know, once again, you think you're innocent. But you're not innocent, brother, brothers and sisters. Nobody is innocent. Hallelujah. Okay, uh, before I move on, I'm just wondering if there's somebody out there that has never made that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's all bow our heads. If you've never committed your life into Jesus' hand and had his cleansing blood cleanse your heart, just raise up your hand right now. Okay. Let's just bow our heads now. Father, I've preached your word here. I pray, Lord, that it's penetrated people's hearts, Lord, and uh, uh, they see their need for a series such as this where we talk about the efficacy of the, your cross, Lord and how we need to be living, crucified lives ourselves. So I pray, Lord, that you would just get people excited about this, and Lord, uh, help them to come here, and Lord, truly profit about uh, what uh, Roy Hessian says in that book, Lord God. And I thank you for this.